As we begin this morning, I, <clears throat> I want to make a distinction. It's a very minor distinction, but one that I believe is helpful, um, at least in my mind, uh, and I hope it will be in yours also. And I, and I believe that this distinction helps to clarify the differences between a, a pastor and an elder. So on the one hand, there are no distinctions. All pastors are elders. The elder is the, the office of the church. And so we believe that there are two specific offices in Christ's church, elder and deacon. Yet there are some instances where the word pastor or shepherd is used to refer to a a specific function in the body of Christ. And so when you see pastor or shepherd, it's always either a verb, so to pastor or to shepherd, For example, in 1 Peter chapter 5, Peter charges the elders to do the action of pastoring. So 1 Peter 5 begins, it says this, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. So there, it's used as a verb, shepherd the flock of God. But there are other places where it is spoken of as um, a gift of God, a spiritual gift even. So, for example, in Ephesians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul says this, and he gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastor teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So, the distinction now. In Presbyterian circles, and and the name Presbyterian, um, that comes from the Greek word for elder, and it refers to their their elder-led system of church governance, which is, I don't know if you know this or not, that's actually what we are, is an elder-led system of church um, leadership. Uh, Many Presbyterian churches have two different types of elders. Now, don't hear me say that we're Presbyterian. I didn't just say that. We're just led in the same similar fashion. Um, but many Presbyterian churches do have two different types of elders. They have ruling elders and teaching elders. This is theological nerddom at its best right here, okay? So just bear with me for a minute. Ruling elders, teaching elders. It comes from 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17, which says, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. I personally um, like using the other biblical terms to describe the distinction in elders, the distinction between elders and pastors, or really I like the other terms which are overseer and pastor. So what really is the distinction? In reality, there isn't one. Both are, excuse me, both are elders. Both overseers and pastors are elders. They serve in the office of elder. Um, but you know as well as I do that, that even here in this church, our elders function differently. Some function as overseers, so, so some do the work of overseeing the ministries and overseeing the lives of the, of the souls under their care. And others function as the pastor teachers, preaching and teaching God's word. Paul says in Acts chapter 20, verse 20, he says, I do not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house. But regardless of some of the kind of functional distinctions among the elders, both the overseers and the pastors are appointed in the same way. They are appointed by God, and they are recognized by the church through a ceremony that the 
the church has come to call the, the laying on of hands. Here's why I've come to appreciate that kind of weird and awkward phrase. And even really to appreciate the imagery of the laying on of hands. In the Old Testament, the book of Numbers, um, chapter 27, verses 18, 19, and 20, we read this. So the Lord said to Moses, Take Joshua, the son of Nun, a man in whom is the Spirit, and lay your hand on him. Make him stand before Eleazar the priest and all the congregation, and you shall commission him in their sight. You shall invest him with some of your authority, and all the congregation of the people of Israel are to obey. This was a commissioning service there in Numbers 27. Moses was instructed to charge Joshua with the leadership of the people, God's people. We see a very similar kind of commissioning service for the priests in uh, the book of Numbers chapter 8 verse 10. And then in the New Testament, in Acts chapter 13, verses 1 to 3, we see this scene. Now there were in the church at Antioch, prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. They followed the example of Moses and the Old Testament. They recognized God's call on the lives of Barnabas and Paul, and they laid their hands on them. They commissioned them into ministry. They set them apart for ministry. And then Paul, who was commissioned there in Acts chapter 13, he passes on that example when he reminds Timothy of the time when, when Pastor Timothy himself had been set apart for ministry. So listen to 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 5 to 8. Paul tells him, he says, I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me as his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Paul's letters to Timothy and then again to Titus are widely known as the pastoral epistles. We call them that. They're instructions for pastors and, and elders. If you want to know what my job description is, if you want to know what Ben's job description is, or really any of the elders, Lyman, Chad, or Steve, if you want to know what our job description is, you've got to start by reading those three letters, First and Second Timothy and Titus. And then we go from there, right? Well, twice in those brief letters, we read about hands being laid on Timothy as a, as a ceremonial way of commissioning him into ministry. So I just read the Second Timothy passage. But Paul says something similar in First Timothy, in his first letter, in chapter 4. So listen to this somber charge. This is First Timothy 4, 11 to 16. He says, command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth. But set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. So Ben, this is a solemn charge. Those words are a solemn charge for Ben, right? But Logansville Church, this is a solemn charge. It's a solemn charge for us as well. 
Look at the, I want to I show you the importance of what's behind this ceremony of the elders commissioning of a pastor. Um, in fact, this morning, just as we did last year when we commissioned Steve Crum as an elder, we're going to look at a brief statement, kind of a summary statement that Paul makes in his instructions to Titus. So we're going to look at one verse this morning, Titus chapter 2, verse 15. Listen to this, this one simple verse. Declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Can we just stop and pray right here as we consider those words? Let's pray. Father, those words are a solemn charge. Not just for pastors and elders, but really for the whole church. Help us to take these things to heart, to have ears to hear, to have understanding, Lord. That we might see wonderful things about your word. Help us to understand this, Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. So I want to acknowledge right at the outset um, that this morning is really more of a dedication of all of the elders. It's a dedication, really, of this church more than it is just one man. Um, now, we're charging Ben today, but really this is for all of us. To use Paul's greeting to the Philippians, he says this. He says, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Logansville, with all the overseers and deacons, we are committing today, or we are recommitting, as Paul wrote, to not be ashamed of the gospel, of the testimony about our Lord. And we are committing today to share in suffering as necessary for the gospel by the power of God. For we are not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Well, I'm, I'm sure that I've said this many times here at this church and from this pulpit, but during the, you know, I've got to put some history in here. During the Reformation, um, the Reformers, in their efforts to define what is and what is not a true church, they came up with three criteria. And so a true church, and, th and that's what the word church means, a church, a church is the assembly of the saints, a true church is an assembly of the saints where first and foremost, the gospel is rightly preached. Second, the, the sacraments or ordinances of baptism and communion are rightly administered. And then, and then third, they said, church discipline is properly maintained. That means that sin is being dealt with and, and that it is not being allowed to run rampant throughout the congregation, destroying lives. Additionally, and I know that I've spoken about this over the years, um, all of those things presume church membership. So, for example, we are told in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17, the author and preacher of Hebrews says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they're keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. That verse refers to the necessity of church discipline. And we need to remember, when you hear the phrase church discipline, you need to think of it like parents disciplining your kids. Not like somebody being thrown in jail, right? It's formative. It's all a part of the process of being a part of a family, is that we love one another enough that we're able to speak the truth to one another. Think of it um, that way. So not only does that Hebrews 13, 17 refer to the necessity of that kind of discipline, but also the relationship of the body to the leadership. So specific elders, specific elders will give specific accounts to a specific God for specific people, right? Not visitors, not occasional attenders, only those who have submitted 
who have agreed to put themselves under the care of those who agree to keep watch over their souls. All of this points to the absolute necessity of biblically qualified leaders. Because some of you can sit in here today and you hear those words and you think of bad examples, terrible examples of leaders, pastors, and elders who have, who have oppressed the church, who have done bad things to the people in the membership. All of this points to the absolute necessity of biblically qualified leaders and, and by leaders there, in Hebrews 13, 17, we mean pastors and overseers, by godly elders. And I can stand you today beyond a shadow of a doubt and say that Logansville Church, I could testify that Logansville Church has godly elders. So Titus. In many ways, the task of um, Titus, the task of really the book of Titus, it had to have been almost completely overwhelming. Paul reminds uh, Titus of that task there in that first uh, paragraph, really, or verse, second paragraph, verse 5 of chapter 1. He says, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might, what, uh, might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Now, we're not sure if that means that he was, a, he was to appoint elders in every town in which they already had planted churches, or just every town. Probably it means every town. But regardless, this work was incredibly important. It was incredibly difficult. It was going to take a lifetime. Let me show you why this was so important. In Acts chapter 20, verses 28, 29, and 30, Paul gathers the Ephesian elders, the elders of the church at Ephesus, and he says to them this, he says in verse Acts 20, 28, 29, and 30, he says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, elders, to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. That was in the church that Paul himself had been essentially the pastor in for a few years. This is in the church that probably the Apostle John would later on become a pastor in. This is in the church that Timothy would become a pastor in. If that could happen where those guys were, it probably could happen here as well. The work of an elder, really, and you can see there, is about the care of souls. This is about the very lives of men and women. This is about the very lives of boys and girls. This is about caring for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. And so Paul lays out here in this letter, Titus, he lays out a charge to Titus that's no less applicable to really to us as 21st century Americans. So if you just, it's all at least in my copy of the scriptures, it's all on two pages, one opening of the Bible. You can see the whole letter. Just let your eyes kind of roll down over the first chapter. You can see that Paul begins with this um, kind of a warm, gospel-saturated greeting in those first few verses. And then he follows that with an explanation of, uh, of what the elder must be, the task that he's giving them, given them in verse 5, and then who those elders must be, especially in contrast with the world, beginning in verse 10, really verses 10 through 16. And then he says, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. That's the command that starts chapter 2. And then from verses 2 through 14, he instructs Titus in the specifics of verse 1. So teach what accords with sound doctrine. And then he gives them the who and the what that accords with sound doctrine. How they are to do that. How he is to do that. And then even he gets to the why in verses 11 through 14. And then, and then verse 15 that we're going to look at today is a summary of all of this. Declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. 
So let's look at each of those commandments. Those are commandments there. Declare these things, he says. What things? Well, in the immediate context of this, he's talking about the gospel and the resulting transformation that God's grace brings in the life of a believer. So look up at verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. Declare these things. Declare these things publicly and from house to house, as, as Acts 20.20 20 says. So here is what the elders are to declare. Specifically, right here in these verses, every elder also, not just the pastors, but every elder is to first declare that Jesus is our great God. Do you see it? For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness, worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus is our great God. Now, this is not to say that Jesus is the Father. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Father, and neither is the Holy Spirit. They are three distinct persons and yet one. We have looked at that just a little bit, just briefly in John 14 as we've studied that. But this is a a plain, um, orthodox, standard Christian belief in the Trinity. But we have to remember the warning of Acts chapter 20 about fierce wolves coming in and not sparing the flock. We live in an age when some false teachers are actively leading whole churches away by speaking twisted things. But we must declare that Jesus is our great God. This is one of the the great heresies of the day, that Jesus is not our great God. But Titus says, keep reminding people, he is our great God. We must declare that Jesus Christ is our great God. An elder, a pastor, must be able to teach what accords with sound doctrine and able to refute those who contradict it. And this here is very basic doctrine. And if you don't hold to this, that Jesus Christ is our great God, then you can't be a Christian. I hope you understand that. This is at the core of Christianity. And if you can't be a Christian, you can't be an elder in Christ's church. But this isn't all he is. We can't stop there with he is our great God. Paul also says right there in verse 13 that Jesus Christ is also our great Savior. He is our great God and Savior. Again, this is, this is kind of basic Christian doctrine. But the idea of Jesus being our great Savior, that should be constantly on the mind and the heart of an elder of a pastor. This is the core of the proclamation of the gospel. And he goes into further detail of the work of Christ in verse 14. It is to redeem and purify. Elders are to remind those under their care. Listen to Acts 20, 28 again. He says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Peter, very similarly, John uh, and Peter, we have been studying John's gospel, and John and Peter were tight early on in their ministry. And they went through a lot together. And Peter reminds us, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 and 19, he says, "...knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold." but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So if, if you're a Christian here today, if you have trusted in Christ for salvation, a couple things. One, he calls you beloved. 
one loved by God. So, beloved, you were redeemed and you were purified by Jesus' own blood. What can wash away my sins? What's the answer to that question? I know you know that song. What can wash away my sins? Our responsibility is to declare these things. To remind us, uh, to remind ourselves, to remind this church, to remind all of us of these truths so that, so that we may be trained, <coughs> excuse me, so that, so that you may be trained, verse 12, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. We need to go just a little bit deeper here because because Paul doesn't, he doesn't really start with the elders' work in the church. He actually starts in the elders' home. So jump back to the first chapter. Um, He lays out the charge in verse 5. And then he says this in verse 6. Let me read 5 and 6. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. Let's look at these. Above reproach. If anyone is above reproach, this means that That in his character, he is to be completely blameless. Not sinless, but godly. And the very first place we can see this is with his relationship with his wife. That's what Paul is saying to Titus here. He is to be the husband of one wife. Literally, he is to be a one-woman man. And I want to clarify something. I've said this before as well, but this is not unique to elders. To be a one-woman man is actually the standard for Christians, for Christian men, guys. It's not unique to elders. It's not actually a very high standard right there. Especially in light of what Paul said um, in Ephesians, which was written really as instruction for all Christian households. In fact, just turn back there to Ephesians chapter 5. I know you probably know this, I've heard this many times, but I want us to see it again. Verses 25 to 32. Verse 25, pastors, love your wives, no, that's not. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. And so at a very bare minimum, elders are to be declaring these things to their wives. So back in Titus, listen to some of the, the these things to their wives. Look in chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. This is what elders and pastors are to be, de- to be declaring to their wives. The grace of God has appeared bringing salvation to all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. First the gospel, then the change. Don't get that order backwards, by the way. First comes the gospel. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation. Then comes the change as we are conformed to the image of Christ. At a very bare minimum, we as pastors, elders of your church, are to be declaring these things to our wives. 
And we're to be declaring these things, not just with our mouths, but through our godly lives as we give ourselves up for her, as Christ gave himself up for the church. But this also extends there in chapter 1 as to how the elder treats his children and how they respond to him. Titus chapter 1 verse 6, his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. Now the ESV, the English Standard Version that I'm using, it uses the word believers, but a better translation is actually faithful. And debauchery, that's that old English word that's similar to prodigal or really depraved. And so back in my day... (laughs) We used to use the term party animal. I don't know that we use that anymore. But that's what this means, and not in a good way, right? His children are also not open to the charge of insubordination. They're not unruly or openly disobedient. They're not, they're not these running around depraved party animals is what this means. Now hear this very carefully. This again is not a particularly high standard, is it? In fact, all Christian kids have actually have a higher standard than this. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. Right? The pastor's kids are not to be more exceptionally depraved than the rest of the kids in the church. But they're also not held to a higher standard than the rest of the kids in the church. This is about how the pastor manages his home. This means that you shouldn't ever say, and those are the pastor's kids. It's the task of a pastor to declare these things. And so, Ben, declare these things even to those kids. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our, our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Declare those things. Act out those things for those girls. Well, at this point in Paul's letter of, I'm jumping back to chapter 1 now, in his letter of qualifications, he becomes a little bit more general. He's addressed the wives and the kids, But now he's going to broaden it a little bit, and these pertain to really all of the pastor's relationships, not just his family. So uh, chapter 1, verse 7. For an overseer, an elder, a pastor, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. Again, That's a pretty low standard. Verse 7, well, not compared to the world, but compared to other Christians, right? This is a pretty low standard. Verse 7 doesn't describe some kind of super Christian. And verse 8 describes kind of the average, ordinary Christian growing in his faith. Let me just talk to the men for a minute. If you've been around church for a while, let's say this doesn't describe you right now. Why would this not describe you in two years? Why would this not describe you in five years? I'm not talking about perfection. I'm just talking about describing you. Why would this not? I'm not talking about aspiring to the office of an elder. Just why would this not describe you? Arrogant, must not be arrogant, quick-tempered, drunkard, violent, or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined? The answer is it should, it should describe us. This describes one who is being trained by the grace of God to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live a self-controlled, upright, and godly life. So the pastor is to declare these things. That's verse 9. That's where this distinction between Christian and an elder, overseer, pastor comes in. The elder, is, in reality, the elder is really just a couple of steps further down the line in some cases. And as such, he is able to give instruction in sound doctrine 
and also able to refute those who contradict it there at the end of verse 9. This is the great task or work of a pastor. He gives instruction in sound doctrine. He declares the gospel starting at home. And in the context of Titus, he's talking about within the church. So notice the covenant language of chapter 2, verse 14. Uh, speaking of Jesus, our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. To purify for himself a people for his own possession. So look at this progression here, just, just through Titus. In chapter 1, verse 9, we see this. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also able to rebuke those who contradict it. Chapter 2, verse 1. As for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Chapter 2, verse 15. Declare these things. Declare that the grace of God has appeared. The pastor is to remind, uh, encourage, and lead his wife in the gospel, his children, and the church. Chapter 2, the olders and the youngers, the older men, the younger men, the older women, and and teach them to teach the younger women, even those who are prone to wander. Because listen again to Acts 20, 28. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. This church, Logansville Community Church, is Christ's church. And because the Holy Spirit has made these elders overseers and gifted the church with pastors, we are simply recognizing his work in this church today. Because he has done this, the elder here is commanded to exhort and rebuke with all authority, he says. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. So, of course, these commands are connected to the the declaration of these things. But both in in exhortation, preaching, teaching, exhorting, and in rebuking, um, there's more emotion and a greater sense of urgency than there is in simple declaration, right? Exhortation is, this is where preaching is different than any other form of, it's not a lecture, because it's an exhortation. It's, it's... It's, the, it's begging us to listen to God. Begging us to read his word. <laughs> it's not a simple declaration. So let's define our terms here. As he says, exhort and rebuke with all authority. To exhort is actually from um, that same Greek word that you're probably familiar with. We've been talking about it in John chapter 14. And the word is paraclete. That word, as we have said, means a helper, um, comforter, or an advocate. It's used twice in that passage in John 14, both in verse 16 that we have looked at already, and in verse 26. So in 16, he says, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. We could even say another exhorter to be with you forever. But the exhorter, the helper, the Holy Spirit, the paraclete, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So here in Titus 2.15, this word's used as a verb, and it means to do the work of aiding and helping and comforting and encouraging. And again, this starts in the home. The pastor is to first help and comfort and encourage his wife, then his own children. And, And so... Let me say this, church, give Ben space to do that. I I am thankful for the space that you give us to do these things. But we need to be sure that we are giving um, pastors, and particularly new pastors, the space to comfort and encourage his own wife and children. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 4 and 5, in the qualifications that Paul gives to Timothy, he says, He, the pastor, the elder, must manage his own household well, with all dignity keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? 
So let me tell you a little secret. I, I think I've hinted at this before. But when the elders get together to pray, um, there are all kinds of things that they ask for prayer for. But typically, on the first, um, the first thing out of the mouths of, of the guys is asking for prayer for our wives and our kids or grandkids. And so pray that they would be a help and a comfort and encourage them, our wives and our kids and our grandkids, their grandkids, in the gospel. I don't have any grandkids yet. Pray that we would do this. Here in Titus chapter 2, there's a whole series of calls for exhortation. Just look at this. So I'm going back to chapter 2, beginning in verse 2. I'm going to just read 2 to 6. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They're to teach what is good. And so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. With all due respect to those who struggle with this, really, this is where I would struggle. You cannot shame, you cannot legalismize older men into being these things here in verse 2. Right? When you look at those qualifications or those encouragements in verse 2, sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, love, and steadfastness, you can't make rules that make people like that. We know that. It's a matter of the heart. And trying to do so really only breeds bitterness. Many of us have experienced that in our own families, friends. You end up with bitter old men who maybe appear to be dignified and self-controlled to outsiders, but it's pretty obvious that they are not sound in faith, in love, or in steadfastness. They're just keeping their own laws. But in contrast to this, the pastor is to, to aid and help and encourage, as Paul tells Timothy, with complete patience and teaching, because the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. And, and this is long-term work. This is a a lifetime of ministry. This is week in and week out. And to be honest, the care of souls is hard work. It's hard work. It breaks people sometimes. Charles Spurgeon died when he was 57. He suffered from depression, what we would call today depression. He suffered from other, really a bunch of health problems. And nearly every biographer, when you read of Charles Spurgeon's life, they trace his early death back to his task of caring for souls. It's hard. But God's grace is sufficient. And the next word here doesn't really make it any easier because that word is rebuke. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Um, It's really the negative aspect of the command to exhort. It means to convince of error, to refute. Sometimes it means chasing off wolves. Again, I'm going back to Acts chapter 20. So listen to verses 29 and 30. He says this, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. An elder, a pastor, must be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also able to rebuke those who contradict it. So sometimes that rebuking is gentle. Like when Priscilla and Aquila in Acts chapter 18 take Apollos aside and explain to him more accurately the ways of Jesus. Sometimes it looks more like Paul when he opposed Peter to his face because, as Paul said, he stood condemned. Or sometimes it looks like what he says in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 18 to 20. He says, This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith in a good conscience. 
by rejecting this. Some have made a shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. That's actually the same kind of language he uses in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 when speaking about church discipline. He says this, When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. It's hard work. This is... This is lose friends for the sake of the purity of the church kind of work. It's gospel work. Sometimes it's public, but most of the time it's private. This is the stuff that causes, as Paul writes, the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. This is the work of a pastor, declaring the gospel to the people, exhorting them to do right, rebuking them when they do wrong. But we can't miss this statement. He says, with all authority. It's right there in Titus chapter 2, verse 15. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. I want to tell you, people do not like that statement. I don't really like that statement that much. We don't like that statement. It's right up there with Hebrews 13, 17, which says, submit to your leaders. We don't like those statements. but elders actually have authority over church members. That's what that says. Hebrews 13, 17, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they're keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. That means that sometimes the things that we say, the pleadings from the pulpit, or when the elders sit down around the table with you, sometimes they're not mere suggestions. But we need to be really clear. I need to be really clear about this. The authority has a source, and it's not my name. It's not how long somebody's been an elder, or how old he is, or or even the badge that he carries with his job, right? That's not where the authority is found. The source of the authority of the elder is found in two things. Primarily, first and foremost, it's found in the Word of God. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. He must teach what accords with sound doctrine. Here's what this looks like when it's played out. 2 Timothy 4, 1 through 4. I charge you in the presence of God and Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. The authority of the elder is rooted in the word of God. And then flowing out of that primary source of authority is the life and character of the elder. Back in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11 says this, Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by the prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them, so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. There's a very important verse that comes before Hebrews 13, 17, the one about submitting to your leaders. It's verse 7. And it says this, so Hebrews 13, 7, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. You have to read that before you jump straight to verse 17. Or you end up with that kind of authoritarianism that I was talking about earlier. The elder must display a way of life and a way of faith that's worthy of imitation, based in God's word. This is where this final statement comes in. Let no one disregard you, Titus. Let no one disregard you. Not because the elder is going around wielding his authority. 
but because he's living a life that is worthy of regard. It is a joy. It is the joy of my life to serve this church. Earlier this um, first Sunday in the year, so in, I think it was January 6th, whatever that Sunday was, was the beginning of my ninth year of ministry here. So we have completed eight full and good years here at Logansville. Some of you know there have been some hard times. There have been some lean years. i got to say, numbers aside, there have been years when there weren't 67 people in the church. There are 67 people coming out, 67 women coming out for a conference on a Saturday morning. I'm just dumbfounded by that. But those lean years, um, by the grace of God, are long gone. And this morning has been as officially commissioned as assistant pastor of this church. I'm asking three things of you. First is this. Please do not disregard the overseers or pastors, for it is our job to keep watch over your souls. The second is this. Please pray for us. Hebrews 13, verse 18, that next verse says this. Pray for us, for we're sure that we have a clear conscience, desiring to act honorably in all things. And in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 17 to 19, Paul says, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. And then he says, to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me, that words may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to boldly proclaim the mystery of the gospel. Pray that for Ben. Pray that for me. Pray for us. Pray for Lyman. Pray for Chad. Pray for Steve. Pray for those men that will be, become elders someday, that we would be faithfully training up more. Pray for the deacons. Please pray for us. And then the third thing that I would ask of you today is please devote yourselves to good works. Look down at Titus chapter 3, verse 8. saying is trustworthy and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. Devote yourself, devote yourselves to good works, which is the result of the gospel taking root in your life. Don't get those things mixed up. It's easy to get them backwards. It's easy to be active about good works so that we can somehow gain our salvation. But Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8, 9, and 10 says this, For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So please pray for us. Please devote yourselves to good works. Please don't disregard the elders of the church. I'm going to ask that, um, Ben, would you come up here? And also, Lyman, Chad, Steve, would you guys come up? I have said, as they come up, I've said before, these 